Hey listeners, welcome back. Today, I'm excited to have Dr. Amy Ladewick back from Wayne State University. We have a great conversation. We talk about Amy's new role as the director of the Writing Center for the university. We talk a little bit about expectations and how to release them. We talk a lot about the fitness mindset competition and the fear that we we go through in competition. And then that voice, you don't always have to be the best to be able to participate. Lastly, but not least, we talk about staying curious in change. Stay tuned. And welcome back, Pocket Change listeners. Today, I'm pretty stoked. We have Dr. Amy back with us, and uh, we're just happy to have you. Welcome back, Amy. Thanks so much. I'm excited to be back for my second round. Yeah. Well, last time you were here, you were saying that there was going to be some change in your world, and in particular in your role at the at the uh, school there. Yeah, so I think the last time we spoke, I had uh, taken on the new position as director of the Writing Center, and we talked about, like, changing jobs and what that means and leadership, but I've had a year in the position, and um, boy, was that interesting, the first year of doing this new job. So I feel like I have a lot of insight about what it means to step into something that's not yours, and Mm. now it is yours, and what do you do with that, and what do you, how do you balance action and, and observing and a lot of different things? Well, you know, it's so interesting. I'm actually in the midst of um, executing uh, a change at a an academic institution, higher education. Mm-hmm. And I think that there could be some really good learnings here that you might be able to share because, you know, we think of things like, um, you know, our continuing education or different pieces that may or may not be moving and people receiving new programs and um, having those people come in. You know, w- when you think about some of your first early learnings, what were the shocking things to you, the things that actually surprised you that you weren't prepared for? Uh, I absolutely was not prepared for how how little the place was being actually run prior to me. So oh. the the previous director and I and I'm not trying to throw anyone under the bus. I mean, I, I understand that people there's a number of different reasons why we end up where we are and we're doing what we're doing. And um so it became very obvious when I took it over that the former director stepped down perhaps a little late maybe should have done it a little sooner but mm. covid happened and you know i'm i'm not sure why the decision was made when it was but i was shocked at um the 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 writing center is sort of running on fumes it mm. was operating a, in a fashion where it assumed a lot of things about higher education that were true maybe 5 10 years ago but are not true now and um it needed a lot of work so I was shocked at how little organizational structure existed in a place that has a decent budget and support from the university and should have a substantial role at a major research one university, but it just didn't. It, it was sort of like a shell of its former self, and nobody had done any of the work to take a step back and look at the place and say, what needs to change how do we um, how do we serve the university optimally in 2023 in a post pandemic world? So I was that is what shocked me the most, and it took me I will I won't lie it took me a few therapy sessions to like work on acceptance and you know moving past and not being um, bitter about 
not knowing what I was stepping into. Like nobody mm. told me how bad it was. Nobody warned me. I So I was completely unprepared. Well, and you're a high performer too, right? Like you have a, a you've got a, an element of can do attitude there. And, yeah. <laughs> you know, you think of higher education, you, from the outside, everything looks really polished right? You know, you don't see, until you start to look under the hood and start to tease things out, you don't really see what some of those messes could be. And 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 frankly, you know, when we think about higher education, we think these are the people who teach us how to do these things, so they must do them really well all the time. You couldn't have said it better. I mean, that's exactly how I would have said it. I, I actually told a mentor of mine uh, some weeks back when I was discussing this very issue with him, um, and he was, he made some sort of gesture to like, you know, maybe down the line, like you'll take a higher administration role after, you know, you do this work. And I was just like, <laughs> I've seen under the hood too much. And I, I used to think, like you said, I used to think everybody had it all together because how could you not to run this multi-million dollar nonprofit institution? Um, but it's not true. <laughs> It's not true at all. There's so many people hanging on by a thread. Well, and it's so interesting, too, though, because, I mean, that kind of swings over into the social conversation, right? When we think about the perceptions that we carry around about other people, it's based off of what we know, right? What are they posting on the Slack channel or the Teams chat or LinkedIn? Or what are they posting on the social media that we do follow? For example, you think of Instagram or or Facebook or TikTok, right? Like, people show their highlight reels, but, you know, people don't talk about, you know, they're like, oh, going to the dentist, but they don't tell you that they went to the dentist to get four cavities filled. You know what I mean? And mm-hmm. so when you think about that, it's, you know, I find it to be some somewhat disappointing as well when you you think that somebody's kind of up on this little pedestal or you think that they've got their sh- their shit together and they really don't. It, it Actually, it normalizes people for me, to be honest with you. Like it actually I find it to be a humbling experience to have that kind of insight into somebody, because then what it does is it's like, oh, OK, well, I'm not so messed up then. Right. Like, yeah. It is. It, I, I like that perspective. I think it is a humbling experience. I think that what I've found, though, is through my own sort of like uh, childhood traumas and, and issues that I have as a person that I carry with me into adulthood and that I've worked recently really hard to sort of kind of reconcile is that I have a lot of uh, trust issues and mm-hmm. and in that sort of like I carry that with me and that I expect things of people and mm-hmm. I want people to do, quote unquote, the right thing and do things the optimal or the right way. Um, and so I have these expectations that really hamper my ability to meet people where they are. And I, I'm i much better at it now than I was even two years ago. And it's constantly a work in progress. But I feel like the way that I show up in the world Um, especially as it relates to how I work with people and understand what they're doing or not doing, that is completely informed by my own personal, like, issues of I expect people to perform optimally. And if you're not, I need to know why and I need to know what the barrier is and we need to fix it. And so, uh, you know, I'm not advocating for that, by the way. So if your listeners are hearing this, this is not an endorsement of that type of behavior. I'm just being uh, completely vulnerable and open to the fact that I struggle with that. And so um, I'm working to get to the place of humility and understanding how these are good things that we see um, but I don't know that I'm quite there yet. I'm trying. 
You know, and, and welcome to the club because I remember uh, back in 2010, 11, 11 it was, I, uh, I had come through some, you know, really significant life change and I thought I need to talk to somebody. So I scoured the internet and I found this therapist that, that was just amazing. And I don't know about you, but like for me, when I see someone's picture, you, you kind of get an energy or you get like a vibe that, that they put out there. And then you read the bio and you're like, okay, yeah, those two things kind of go together. Well, this woman, her name is Sharon. She was just absolutely amazing. And I went into this session and I was talking about how people were consistently letting me down. And I just felt like I didn't have the support that I needed. And she, she said, okay, well, I'm going to stop you. And I'm going to ask you why you have such high expectations of other people. And I said, well, because isn't that how it goes like aren't we supposed to have expectations for people to rise to and kind of meet us to to want to be better and she goes well what tells you that people want that and I was like well I don't care what other people want I want that right <laughs> so right. I've been through this journey uh and very similarly and I I grapple with it myself you know where you, you're setting up the conditions for people to be motivated and inspired or you know, you're giving them everything to be successful. And then it turns into something where you're still getting that subpar delivery or that engagement that just really isn't there. And you're like, I don't understand because I'm putting so much into it. And then it it is for me, it's a lot of internal discussion where I'm like, why are you projecting your expectations? Like I am an incredibly high performance person. Like I don't start something I'm not going to finish generally. Um, you know, I, I have a very good moral compass I surround myself with people who are very similar in that same fashion. But at the same time, I also know that very few people kind of sit at that level all the time, right? People kind of ebb and flow, right? Yeah, I think they do. And I, I mean, in some things, I guess it's just a matter of me understanding sort of priorities and prioritization. Mm -hmm. And that's some that's a lens through which I've been looking at a lot of things work-related. And so when I think about um, performance and I think about optimal, uh, optimal performance, the things that I choose, right, to, to be optimal in and to perform in, I will perform at that high level. And those choices look different than other people's choices, right? So they mm -hmm. may be doing and giving and, and have that level of commitment in something that is not a priority for me, right? And yeah. I don't even see, I don't have the opportunity to see how they are performing or showing up in their life because of their difference in priorities. And so I think that's a, a misalignment for me sometimes is that I'm like, you know, if you want to do X, Y, Z, you have to be on and performing and doing and showing up and being consistent and all these things. And they just may not have a priority in that thing. And I might not agree with that, especially if I work with them. But, you know, I hate this phrase, but I use it a lot often now. And sometimes I just have to say it is what it is. Yeah. I have to learn how to work around it and and also maybe focus more on the things that I'm doing and less on the things that I perceive other people not to be doing. Mm, that is really powerful, you know, and, you know, one of my favorite phrases, and I use it constantly, and I tell myself this constantly, is actions express priorities. And so you're 100% right, is the things that we focus on, where we invest our time, that's where we invest our life. And, you know, what's important to me might not be important to you. I mean, you know, an area where we've met very, very holistically is in the health and wellness space. Mm -hmm. We both had a journey to coming to become healthier individuals. 
I'm a little bit more hardcore in the bodybuilding and you're like, yeah, check out my, my spin or my run from today and look how awesome I did. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want to do a spin. That's not a priority for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And for you, same, same, same. Right. I mean, is the, the priority of doing an hour of fasted cardio and then doing 90 minutes of training is not your priority. Right. And it, it is, it's a very interesting dynamic when we think about how we interact and how we engage with people. And, you know, as somebody like I coach a lot of people, my, my coaching practice is quite healthy right now. And that's one area where I found that this kind of disbanding my expectations on people and finding that, that space of humility where it's really, really served me well is, um, you know, you, you have a conversation with somebody who's maybe in the mental health space and somebody who's in the mental health space has come to me and said, hey, I want to have a conversation. I want to get better. I want to do more. I want to be more motivated, whatever. Great. Fabulous. I'm going to give you the pathway to get there. And so we have a conversation. We connect the dots. I give them some homework. We get together the next week. Oh, I didn't do my homework. But you did spend 20 hours playing Zelda. <laughs> so is Zelda your priority or is getting the life that you want your priority and if Zelda is your priority then that's great enjoy that but just know that so long as you're investing 20 hours here and you're not putting that into finding a partner healing your past traumas going out for a walk whatever it is that we discussed you're going to get what you get right yeah it's it's very that and it's um I think though and I don't know if you would agree you know, because you and I, as you mentioned, we've had many years sort of exploring our own connection to wellness and health um, to, to sort of arrive where we are. And mm -hmm. I, th I feel like, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like we both went through periods in the last 10 plus years where we were trying to figure out, right, that flow of like, what what does this look like for me? What, how mm -hmm. much do I want to put into this thing, you know, and, and how do I respond to that work mentally, emotionally, physically, et cetera. And so a lot of times I, especially with the internet and you mentioned like scrolling on Instagram and stuff. And, and when it comes to health and wellness and training, you know, even people like you and I who are firmly positioned in our own we know what training we're doing. We know why we're doing it. We have our goals. We, you know, everything is is pretty, we're not looking for new necessarily. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of people are looking for new and they get caught up in, the, they don't have a goal. They don't have a thing and they want somebody else's goal, you know, and I'm not like reinventing the wheel here. I'm saying things that we know. But that I think is a big difference in what I've noticed between myself and others um, especially when I owned my cycling studio and people were coming there and it was like people wanted to believe that they could exercise for their mental health as much as their physical health. They wanted yeah. to believe it, right? They were like, this sounds like a good thing, but they couldn't, some of them couldn't necessarily get there because they just hadn't had enough time to be in it, to go through the motions of like, what does this mean to me? What am I looking for? If I'm looking to lose weight, maybe they haven't hit that plateau, that first plateau moment of like, okay, now I have to research and figure out like, do I, do, am I comfortable here? What does it mean to take my body to another level? Do I want to do that? Mm -hmm. Do I want to invest in that? And so I just try to tell people like, look, man, it's a lifetime of exploration. And, and sometimes if you're lucky, you hit a stride where you're like, this is me. 
and I love this and I thrive in this, much like you are with bodybuilding, much like I am with cardiovascular training, primarily like I thrive in that space. You thrive in your space. I just think a lot of people haven't hit the thrive yet. Yeah. And I think that, you know, you're you're 100 percent right. And even when we think about that, I, how many times have we come and gone? Like when when I think back to when I first got into fitness, I mean, I can think of at least five seasons of change that I went through as I was searching for not necessarily my new, but that certainly was a part of it, at least in the first three phases. Mm-hmm. But then coming through and finding my niche and where I really fit until I found that, like that probably took me from like, cause I started really working out and losing weight in 2007. And it wasn't until 2011, 2010 that I found bodybuilding. And even then I took a small hiatus and played football. Right. And I didn't come back until 2014. And that's when I became really, really entrenched in it. Right. Because I knew that this is what I loved, you know, but I did a distance run. Like one of my girlfriends convinced me that I needed to do this 10 K and I was like, okay. So I started like running with a bunch of guys from work and uh, we would do like five K's, 10 K's over lunch. And I was like, ah, you know, okay, cool. You know, whatever. And I remember I was doing like this. I did the, I did the 10 K. And it was in Canmore, which is like all mountain. And it was a five kilometer cycle and you had to do it twice. And that was so traumatizing for me because the first 5K was so hard. Like it was like (laughs) up and down and I didn't train hills. Like I live in the prairie. So like, you know, so I I, I didn't train properly for it, but I wasn't undertrained, I suppose. But then like I went to go do it the second time and I just wanted to cry because I came to this this like mountainside again and I was like, I don't want to do this. Right. So it's like even after I had found my niche, I was still like, OK, I'll try that. But, it's you know, it kind of kind of comes back to the the person who chases two rabbits goes hungry. Right. Find your lane and and it might take you some time to get in there. And it might be that, yeah, you know, cycling is something that, you know, I I really, really enjoyed. That's how I lost a majority of my weight very early on. I lost 80 pounds just doing spin classes and, you know, cardio classes in the morning, hiding from people so that they couldn't see me, right? Oh, wanted to sad about that and hearing that. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's also, I don't know, as you're talking, I was realizing, you know, I think a voice that isn't out there enough is the voice that says you also don't have to be the best at something to enjoy it. And I I feel like this concept is getting traction a lot in um, social media spaces with like therapists and stuff, which is good, like pop psychologists or whatever, for whatever they're worth. And that because a lot of times people think, especially with fitness, that like if I'm not competing or if I'm not like trying to be the best, then I'm not, you know, why do I even do it? Or or and it, it goes dead trickles down to like if I miss one of my training sessions, well then fuck it, I'm gonna eat a bag of Oreos or whatever. And like this <laughs> is a, you know, like it's 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 a very common thing that people do. And I try to be a voice with people of like. And in part, it's because of I, you know, my chronic disease, you know, having MS makes certain things very challenging for me. I do a really mm-hmm. good job of hiding that challenge, um, not on purpose, not because I'm afraid of it. I'm quite open about having MS, but it's just, you know, there are some sometimes our bodies will fight in a way that um, is not worth battling against to to that level. And Mm -hmm. I say that not to be defeatist, but I mean, just if I use myself as an example, when I was diagnosed with MS, I was a triathlete 
And and I really, at that time, was like fighting to become eventually competitive in the space because I absolutely loved it. I was like, oh my God, I would swim, bike, and run for the rest of my life. I love this shit. And so when it happened, um, the symptoms that I still have to this day affect my feet. It's very difficult for me to run distance. I can mm-hmm. I can run comfortably for, you know, one, two miles, and then it just gets dangerous. And so the thing is, is like, I don't have to be the best at something, but I can still enjoy it. I still like to run. I still do it regularly, but I can't, I I literally can't do it for a long period of time unless I really want to put myself in danger. Mm-hmm. And some people choose to do that and that's fine. But I just want people to know, even if you're not battling like a physical disability or an illness, you can still enjoy something and like be in the middle of the pack, like hang out there with me. Like, it's totally fine. We're still healthy. We're still taking care of ourselves and finding joy. But, like, it's okay if you're not beating the person next to you or winning a gold medal. That's, I don't think that that has to be everybody's goal to find joy. You know, it's uh, those are such great thoughts. And I agree. And I couldn't agree more. You know, I I think back to my 2020 and 2021 competitive seasons in bodybuilding. And 2020 was, it was a tough one because of course it was COVID, right? And so they had relaxed the restrictions enough that I could compete. My family came with me. We went to Vancouver. We brought a friend with us, but they couldn't come into the venue, right? They had restricted the venue like I want to say days before. And so you're already prepared. You're ready to go. You're registered. Hey, we're just going to rock and roll, right? So we get over there and it was fantastic. They tanned us and touched us up outside in October. Not cool. It was very cold. I was Actually, like, how really cool. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and then we get out on stage and we do our thing and we have a great time. It's a one show format. They send us off. I play second, super stoked about it. My routine was beautiful. Awesome. Go to the next show um, in November. And that one, they changed the restrictions the day before. So they were in different provinces. And so you have different restrictions because of how, how it was. And Ruth and I must have sat, like Ruth must have sat in the car when I went into the venue for probably an hour, 45 minutes to an hour until she could actually come in to see. I placed third. My peak was terrible. The show was four hours late. It was just like it was a schmoz, right? But then fast forward into 2021, and I decided that I was going to do the um, national show because I had qualified for it. I had two qualifications. And so I thought, might as well, right? So you go in and you pay your incredibly heavy fees uh, to participate in this, you know, event. And um, it was one of the most disappointing experiences at the time that I've ever had. And it was, um, I was, I was crushed. I came out six of six, um, right. Lost my perspective in terms of, you know, what I was there to achieve. Did I think I was pro worthy? No, but that's not really necessarily the thing. I didn't think that I was sixth place. And it was really crazy because when they brought us out on stage, normally what they would do is they would just bring the top five out at any other show and like let the one person have a little bit of dignity. And instead they brought all six of us out and they just called all of these other women up to the front of the stage. And then they didn't even dismiss me. I just had to do this walk of shame in the smallest piece of clothing that I've ever owned in my entire life in front of however many people were watching the video around the world. Mm. It was, it was devastating to me. Like I just felt 
I felt disrespected. I felt really sad. And I wasn't actually even sure that I was going to compete again after that experience. And it wasn't necessarily just the experience, but it was that whole mindset of, if I'm not competitive, then I'm not like, why would I continue bodybuilding? So it's really interesting because like, you know, you come out of something like that where you, you're looking the best that you have. You don't know who else is going to show up. It's a very, very subjective sport. Let's be very honest. Mm -hmm. um, there's politics at play that I'm not even aware of because I don't participate in the cult of what is these, you know, these federations. And so you know, it took me some time. Like I was like, I didn't want to train. I just wanted to eat. And it became this mindset of self-sabotage of, you know, and, and really nobody at the Federation gives a shit. Like they don't care that I'm going to go and drink, you know, Bailey's in my coffee every morning over the holidays and eat Christmas treats and whatever. Right. Like they, they don't care. Right. They got my 500 bucks. They're happy. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think what it was, was, you know, we were we were on the elevator. Ruth and I were going back up to our room and the woman who was actually the promoter, she said to me, I was like, she's like, so what are your plans? And I was like, well, I got to take time. I got to get some mass built. Like I, you know, I, I don't do a lot of the things that some of these other women in the sport do, because listen, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube. Once it's done, it's done. Right. And um, she goes, oh, years. She goes, no, she goes, maybe you should just choose a class that's that's right for your physique. And I was just like, this is the class that I choose. My physique doesn't choose it. I like it. Right. And so like I was in this really state of like this, this state of brokenness for this very brief period of time. Probably I would actually it wasn't that brief. It was probably about four weeks where I was really thinking about it. And, you know, I came to this space where I was like, I'm just going to find joy in training again. I don't know if I'm ever going to be competitive again. It doesn't matter, but I'm just going to find joy in moving my body and feeling good about it. And then eventually it became a, a mindset of I'm going to continue doing this and I'm going to kick the shit out of it and I'm going to look the best I ever have but I still don't know if I'm going to compete then it became oh I'm going to compete with my friend in Little Rock and it doesn't matter because it's with the MPC and I'm a Canadian citizen and you know what I mean like and so it evolved to this point where it's like now I really am not attached to the outcome so it is very much of I don't have to be the best to still enjoy and be competitive and love my body in whatever shape I look in, in that moment, like, and I think that when we think about those types of things, it is, if you're not an award winning, if you're not on that podium, if you're not taking your pro card, if you're not doing these things, that there's this seemingly undercurrent of, well, you don't matter. Well, no, yeah. I do matter. I do matter. And it does matter that I go out and I enjoy myself and that I love myself for how I show up. My word for this year, when I came into this year, unapologetic. It's such a great word and it's, it's so important. Um, and I, it's not never a word that I consider to be un or, uh, overutilized at all yeah. because it's, it's often crucial that we be that way with ourselves. Um, as you were talking about the whole experience of the competition, I was thinking about this, uh, hybrid sport that I fell in love with called high rocks and that I'm still training for, um, and it's very, it's very, very difficult. It's one of the hardest uh, sports ever that exists because you have to be strong and you have to be fast um, and you have to have the cardiovascular gas tank for it. So it's like you can't just be like a marathon runner and you can't just be like, you know, um, a power lifter or whatever. Like it's you have to have some of both to do this. And most of the athletes who are successful at this are what I would consider to be kind of like freak unique athletes. Like they, 
you know, you know how some people are just born and they have a lot of genetic gifts and they have a lot of, you know, they've been working out and in sports since they were children and, and it's great. It's beautiful. I'm not hating on these people. I think they're fantastic and fascinating and I love it. Um, (laughs) but, but, uh, they, I, I watch them and sometimes I get in my head, you know, and it's specifically tied to my disability, but it's like, that is what I was striving for when, things went south for me physically. And sometimes I'm I'm just like, I shouldn't be doing this because if I can't do it at this level and I can't even be close to these people, like why am I even playing in their world? I'm just, I'm just mucking up the, the course, right? I'm taking their time. They're like, oh, look at this sad little slow girl as she like, you know, muddles her way through this thing. And it's a lot of self-pity that I find myself in. But I realized recently that it's self-pity because it's just, I'm scared. Like I'm, I'm just scared of doing something that I'm not sure I can fully do. I did the course with a partner once and it was the hardest thing I'd ever done. And I told myself, you're just going to, you're going to do it. You're going to train. You're going to do it once by yourself. And after you do it, you don't have to do it again because you will have done it. (laughs) And I don't know if that's true. I don't know if I finish it and I say, I'm going to do it again. It's just one of those things where like, I, like you had to fall in love with the process again and let mm-hmm. go of the outcome. And Steve, you know, would tell me and for the listeners, that's my husband. And he would tell me like, it doesn't matter if you don't finish. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. You, if you get out there and you do three, you know, three of the, the, the stations and you can't do any more, he goes, you, you did a, you tried, you worked mm-hmm. hard, you went and you, how many people don't even like click the start button, you know? Or like get past that. So I've had to have that energy. Um, and and that I feel like sometimes to get back around to where we started the conversation, the kind of self-compassion that I can give myself, I'm very difficult or it's very difficult for me to give to other people. And I think for a lot of people, that's the inverse. Yes. They are more compassionate for others and less compassionate for themselves. And actually, I feel like I I'm really good and really quick at like finding compassion with me. But I have a difficult time with other people. So I'm working on that, you know, as it as it relates to like my professional life, too. Well, and I think that is I mean, I think a lot of people do struggle with that. And I know that I'm pretty much the opposite. I mean, my my work expects that I'm compassionate with people. And sometimes I'll come out of my office and I will have faked some compassion for the day. And, it, you know, I'm, I'm shaking my head and I'm thinking like, this is just so easy. And it's like, no, wait a minute. Those are your expectations. Mm-hmm. That is you putting and projecting yourself onto these people. That's not why they come to you. They come to you to talk about things and problem solve and, you know, those types of things. I am ridiculously um, deficient in being compassionate for myself. And that's something that I have been working on for years. Right. Because it is it's that standard. And that's why this year it was coming into this year was being unapologetic. I want to be unapologetically who I am. And it's one of those situations where it's like, take it or leave it. Right. Like this is me. And if you don't like the fact that I'm uh, a really muscle bound nerd who, you know, loves positivity and um, dog snuggles. Well, that's that's an issue, not an ish me. Yeah, I like that. An issue, not an ish me. That's great. <laughs> Perfect. So talk a little bit about um, where where you've taken things in terms of the changes that you may have made at the Writing Center. Because it sounds like when you came into it, you really, you were shocked. 
and you're now a full year in, what were some of the things that you addressed to bring it to where you thought it should be? So the first thing that I did is I didn't do anything. I just Mm. watched. And that was very difficult for me. I did a lot of thinking initially in the first few weeks. And I'm like, I, I have thoughts. I have ideas. But really, I don't understand this place. I don't understand what it does now. I don't understand what it should do. And fully, like I had some idea, but not, you know, I didn't know. So I I just said, I'm going to take the year in the status quo. I'm going to fight the urge to want to change everything now. Um, and instead, I'm going to take really good notes. I'm going to observe. I'm going to plan. I'm going to put things in silos and understand, like, what are the elements that need that we need to operate And I sort of, I'm a visual person. And so what I did is I drew like what ended up being like a bicycle wheel with several spokes. And, you know, the middle was like optimal writing center operation. And I just started drawing lines out of it of all the things that go into how this thing can run successfully. And it ended up having, the, the amount of spokes was unwieldy and I started to get overwhelmed. And then at that point, I messaged my, I I wrote an email to the chair of my department who oversees the writing center. And um, I said, hey, uh, I can't do this by myself. So we need to hire an assistant. Um, That person should have a formal position. They should be salaried. Like it should not be ad hoc like it was in the past. You know, it has to be somebody who is specifically paid to do this job as an assistant here. And she was wishy-washy initially about it. And then we ended up on a Teams meeting and she was kind of hemming and hawing. And I said, look, I'm just going to be frank with you. If I don't get an assistant, I'm not doing this anymore. Wow. I I just have to be really honest with you. This is an untenable job by myself. There's no way one person can run it. Writing centers of our size and institutions of our size across the country are run by minimally two people, if not four. And so I told her, I said, it's just either do it or or you find somebody else to do this because I can't. And wouldn't you know it, I had a job, I had a job ad like two weeks later. Wow. So we've hired um, an assistant. That person starts in August. Um, So I made big changes in the sense that I have this salaried position coming in. Um, I also hired a person who specializes in recruitment and retention and sort of engagement strategies. So I, I'm, I'm starting with the big pieces and then delegating to those people for the next academic year. Here are the deficits that we have. Here's how I think we could resolve them. But I also want you to bring your talents and your ideas and your mm. skills and you tell me what you think. And then we can come together and find solutions to some of these issues that we're having. And that all took months. Like if anybody's listening and they're they're in a similar position, like, you know, that was not like I did that in three weeks. This has been a whole year's worth of hurry up and wait, you know, and watching something struggle is so hard. I'm not a parent, um, but I'd imagine that if there's parents out there they might know that, you know, if you have a, a child and you want them to thrive and learn something on their own and make mistakes and and mm-hmm. be, become resilient, right? It can be difficult, I'm sure, to watch 
something and or someone struggle when you can, you know, you can step in and immediately do the thing, but you know that it won't be as good if you, you know, if you do the thing for them. And that's what it was like with the writing center for the year. I'm like, I know I can step in and I can do something, but it won't be as good. So I have to let it struggle in order to thrive later. So that that's pretty much what it's been like. That's a pretty strategic um, approach, a pretty smart approach. And, you know, you're, you're right. Watching a human that you've created struggle uh, is not, it's not pleasant. It's hard. It, it's very hard. And, you know, I think it's, it's very interesting that you you took the approach that you did. And so has that led to kind of like a, like more of a strategic roadmap that you've now, is that where the delegation is coming out of in terms of how you manage these changes and what that looks like and understanding your stakeholders? Like, for example, your engagement person, like what are some of the, the, the things that are going to be the bigger changes that need to to have some of that change strategy wrapped around? Yeah, so all of that did lead to the ability to to kind of again, like it was like taking a step back and just visualizing what are the elements that we need. How can I organize these elements into you know sort of like subcategories, and then have like a plan of execution. And the bigger things that we need to do are letting the university know that we exist. And so one of the things that has happened over the years is that I think that the where the previous director used to have a sort of constant steady stream of people coming into the center, um, over the years that has fallen off. I don't know mm-hmm. why. I don't know if it's because whatever engagement strategies they had, they weren't doing or that things have changed. But I've heard from too many people in the last year, anecdotally at the university, that they didn't even know that we had a writing center, which wow. blew my mind. And so that told me, well, the one of our biggest issues is that people don't even know that we are a thing. And I found out that the university also has sort of deprioritized us in terms of our web presence, in terms of our social media presence at the university. We just don't exist in the ecosystem in a way that other programs and entities do for student support. So I have, right after I speak with you, I have a meeting with like the Dean of Academic Success to try to make sure that we are part of their messaging. Um, There's a lot of at big places, as you have experience with, um, the bigger something grows, the more unwieldy it becomes and the mm-hmm. more difficult it is for one hand to talk to the other. And so it's a lot of constantly like re-emailing people, circling back like, hey, I'm just make, trying to make sure that you have this on your website. It's a lot of outreach and engagement. And so I'm I'm excited to pass this off to my graduate student when they come on board and giving them specifically the task of doing this for the graduate students. And then I'm going to have another person working with the undergraduate student population. And it's just a matter of like, wherever things are, wherever people are gathering, where whatever is happening on campus, we need to be there. Mm-hmm. We need to be there with swag. We need to be there with things with our URL on it. We have to we have to do um, newsletters. We have to do uh, the website has to be optimized. We have to do physical branding, like putting posters up in the dorms. I mean, I just want to get it to the point where people are texting their friends and they're like, I'm sick and tired of seeing this writing center stuff all over campus. <laughs> it sounds like you have a lot of really great 
things in the hopper. And I'm going to be really excited to hear how that plays out once you've got your new academic year. Because, I mean, like you're bringing your staff on in the next couple of weeks and um, then you're just going to be hot to trot and ready to roll. I hope so. I really do. We're also we're going to have like a a new scheduling software system that allows for different things. It's like if if anybody out there listening, you know, is in a leadership position or they run anything, they will know that like sometimes it's overwhelming the amount of things you have to manage and and think about. So like just down to like how are people making their appointments? Mm-hmm. Is that software the best software that we could have? And if it's not, how do we find it? How do we pay for it? What do we do? I mean, I spent months on that alone. And I have, I've got, I just got yesterday the approval to pay for that new software scheduling. So it's just a lot of, you know, I found the thing. I wrote up a justification for the thing. Give me the money. Wait for the money. Get the money. Do the thing. And so <laughs> I figured, I mean, like, I'm good at the academic stuff. I got it down to a science. I'm excited about next year, but I'm also, the last thing I'll say about it is I'm trying to temper my expectations so that I don't uh, get upset if certain things don't go how I might want them to and instead be curious, not judgmental, as Ted Lasso reminds us all the time. Um, So to just remain curious about why things are the way they are and how I might help them be better or more effective i love that so much i'm writing that down stay curious yes well amy it has been an absolute pleasure having you back and can't wait to have you back and hear how all these changes start to play out in q1 and let's see how things go and how well you're tempering those expectations because that is uh, that in and of itself is a project internally that we work on all the time. It really is. And uh, I mean, we can just, this is going to become a series for your listeners where they're like, oh my God, I have to tune in to hear what's happening at the writing center at this Detroit university. (laughs) (laughs) What's Dr. Amy up to now? (laughs) Right, right. What wild and crazy things is she doing? Oh, it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much for joining us again. It's been such a pleasure having you. Yeah, likewise. See ya. Wonderful. And uh, listeners, thank you for joining us and Dr. Amy today. And if you have anyone you'd like to see us feature or any content you'd like to see us create, feel free to reach out. A call to 